Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Vynamic, Trending Health features industry guests and panelists who explore topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Mindy McGrath, Vynamic's healthcare industry advisor. Telehealth has become a cornerstone of delivery options in the healthcare industry. And while many associate this enabling technology with more basic primary care services, the market has evolved with a focus on life-saving delivery services as well. To help us dive into this topic, we are joined by friend of Vynamic, Dr. Rajiv Narula, vascular neurologist and co-founder of StatSeva and former director of Telonoroscience at Cooper University to dive into this topic. Hi, Dr. Narula. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So telehealth has traditionally been positioned as an access to care model for primary care needs. Um, The model we're discussing today is really focused on what I would say maybe more high stakes acute care episodes um, like stroke and other potential potential issues that arise um, around chronic diseases. But what I wanted to do is ask you first, just in general, when do you think about telemedicine? Like, how would you describe what telemedicine actually is to a listener? So telemedicine is basically uh, what we're trying to do is change the way we see patients in healthcare. We have been seeing them in person traditionally, but we've understood that there is a lot we can accomplish to help patients uh, with achieving their healthcare needs through remote video and audio evaluation. And our goal really is, over the next few years, I see telemedicine changing into just becoming the new standard of care, where the word tele will really be removed. It will traditionally just be medicine. Well, that's, that's an interesting take on it, right? Um, can you tell me a little bit about Telestroke and some of the work that you were doing at Cooper and how that has paved the way for some of the new ventures that you're involved in? Yeah, absolutely. So what we did at Cooper, uh, like I said, so I'm a stroke neurologist. A stroke is very similar to a heart attack, which a lot of people are well-versed on and educated since we've been growing up, but not everyone knows as much about stroke. So it's basically the same thing as a heart attack, but in the brain. There's a blockage in an artery on one side of the brain, causing someone to be paralyzed, causing them to be unable to speak, unable to see, and uh, maybe have some sensory symptoms as well. Uh, We do have a treatment for this, which can can be done emergently, which is the FDA-approved treatment. However, there's a lot of places and hospitals around the country that don't have the specialists or stroke neurologists to treat patients for this, which leaves patients handicapped and disabled uh, when they don't receive treatment. Stroke is the fifth leading cause of death in the country. Uh, It's the leading cause of disability. And every 40 seconds in this country, someone has a stroke. Someone dies of a stroke every four minutes. So we were able to use telemedicine and help patients uh, improve outcomes where we can really reverse their paralysis within minutes. Yeah, because timing is everything, right? Absolutely. So basically what you were doing at Cooper then is um, providing a service to other hospitals that may not have a, a, um, a neurologist on site to provide the right types of instruction on how to treat somebody that presents with a stroke. Absolutely. So you're, you're, you're spot on. So what we did was we have a team of neurologists and strokes trained neurologists at Cooper where we understand we have the expertise and these, these doctors are on call 24-7, 24-7, 365. There are several other hospitals around the South Jersey area who see stroke patients, 
But unfortunately, when the patients come into their hospital, they're unable to treat them or may not have the expert recommendations. What we're able to do is put our technology into these ERs 24-7. If a patient comes into their ER that they're concerned about a stroke, they would call our physicians from Cooper Hospital. Our physicians would pick up the phone within five minutes. Within under 10 minutes, they would be on video seeing and evaluating that same patient. Where then we can potentially treat them if needed, if it was a severe stroke and a second treatment was needed where a neurosurgical procedure was required, they would be transferred to Cooper. So this is a benefit not only uh, for the hospital, but absolutely for the patients uh, and the community as well. These are areas where you wouldn't really think New Jersey has any rural areas or small hospitals that don't have expert stroke care. But even in 2019, going into 2020, this is common you think about it's common in New Jersey, a densely populated region, you can imagine what's going on in the rest of the, in, in the, rest of the country. Absolutely. And given the fact that you've been in this, this area for a while, how's that led to some of the other ventures that you're involved in? Yeah, so we've been doing this where this is acute, like you said, emergent. We respond immediately. Well, there's a whole other industry and whole other necessity and requirement for physicians uh, there's a shortage in this country, but there's also a shortage uh, out, outside of this country. Uh, and I started to realize that we're pretty fortunate living here in this country in America. We still have access to some care, uh, whether it's remote, whether it's in person. We can get an appointment with a doctor. It may take a few weeks or a month, but we can still get someone. There's an area, an and, uh, underserved area in this world, where there's villagers who don't see physicians until their life or, or death situation, until they have end-stage kidney, until st they have end-stage uh, liver disease, until they have a brain hemorrhage, because they've never seen a doctor their whole life. What we did was, uh, what we wanted to do was help serve these patients. Uh, physicians, healthcare practitioners, nurses, residents, everyone always wants to try to help anyone they can. We have a set of knowledge that we've learned throughout our schooling and our, our education. We can leverage this to help someone else would love to do that. And this is a pretty common theme. What happens is there's medical missions that we go on. There's uh, Haiti, Puerto Rico, other places in the, con in, in the world that physicians will travel to and say, I've got a week off. I'm going to go and serve, serve this community, whether they're surgeons, they're OB-GYN practitioners. But time is, is tough. It's challenging to find that time sometimes, mm -hmm. even when you want to do good. What we thought of doing is, well, if we have patients who really have this need, other places in the world, why can we connect them to U.S. physicians who are looking to s serve others? So we did was we started StatSeva. It's a nonprofit where our goal is to bring U.S. physicians to villages via telemedicine. We took a bus, we gutted the bus, and we turned it into a mobile medical clinic. And what this does is we have, we're operating this in nine villages right now. We started about 18 months ago. And our goal is really more primary care focused. We actually have a physician on the bus, we have a nurse on the bus, and we drive around to these nine villages and see every single person there. The goal is uh, to connect these villagers now when they need an expert opinion to think about the concept of connecting someone in a village with a cardiologist from Harvard, someone in a village with a neurologist from University of California. And to think that we can do that now is pretty exciting. So that's how that concept came about, and we've now been operating for about 18 months. We've seen almost uh, 3,000 patients completely free who would have never seen a physician before. That's incredible. 
That is really exciting. <laughs> it's fun. It's, it's, it's interesting really nice. to see, right, how technology enables that type of, of access to care, which typically had not existed prior to that. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. So it's really exciting. And initially, there were challenges. There were hurdles. Uh, the the uh, state of mind in India is a little different than it is here. These people initially, when we said this is free, we're just here to see you and try to help you see if you have assess you for high blood pressure, high cholesterol, for diabetes, and screen you. They were suspicious. They were like, is this a government scheme? Why are you doing right. this for free? Uh, what are you getting out of this? It took a couple months for them to really understand there's really nothing at the other end of this. We're really just doing this every day, six days a week, eight hours a day. And, and now there's other villages in the area that are excited about it and asking us to come there as well with our bus. I'm, I'm going to pivot for a second and ask you, what do you think the opportunity is to actually do that in the United States? Because you think about rural areas in the United States, right, where people are very underserved, maybe even equally so, right? They don't have access to even primary care physicians. Do you think there's an opportunity to um, to do that home at you know here in the United States at home? Absolutely. So if you think about the concept of urgent care, there's urgent cares a lot of places now. They're popping up in every corner. It is a successful model. Uh, uh, urgent care is different from emergency rooms because they, there's a, l different, a little bit of a different level of acuity. Mm -hmm. And then you think about private practice or the traditional model of where we go see a physician in their office. There's pros and cons to every single one of them. But what we don't have is we really don't have a mobile solution to someone bringing a doctor to you or being a little bit more accessible in, what you said, rural areas. Uh, from an institutional standpoint, from a financial standpoint, a lot of the institutions want to go where the metropolitan areas are, uh, where, the, where they're more densely populated. But those are not really the people that need the service. It's, it's the opposite. It's the center of the country. It's the rural areas. It's the urban communities that could really benefit from something like this. And I think uh, having solutions now, incorporating technology into what we're doing to practice medicine, we can really help these people out and enable this. Yeah, and I think about just what the trend we've seen right around in rural health, around community clinics and hospitals having to close their doors because they're just not able to sustain the business model um, and what that does to rural areas when you have the local community hospital close and physicians are leaving the area. Um, so Absolutely. Something that just sits on my mind, and I'm not to pivot our discussion, but it, as you were talking about this, I was like, wow, I, I could see how this is applicable, right, to what's going on in the U.S. as well. Absolutely. And I'll give you a little bit of an example and kind of uh, backstep a little bit back to Telestroke and kind of what we're able to do and what the potential here really is. Uh, like you had mentioned earlier, stroke is an emergency. We have a very limited time to treat a patient. We have four and a half hours from when they were last normal where we can deliver this uh, clot-busting medication called TPA. The majority of patients, 95% of patients, will not show up in time to receive this. So our treatment window and our treatment population is very low. So the few patients we can actually offer this to, we want to capture every single one. One-third of America lives over an hour away from a stroke-enabled treatment center. So what we're able to do now, if you think about this, uh, if someone goes to a hospital in New Jersey, the majority of them will have the, a treatment for stroke or they'll have a neurologist. Let's put this in perspective into what happens in Idaho. Okay, uh, A patient will go to a hospital. They're paralyzed on one side of their body. Uh, they, this just happened about one hour ago. 
Uh, their family came in and saw them on the ground. They called 911. They went to the ER. They reached an ER, a small community hospital, who says, we don't have stroke neurologists here or any way that c we can treat you. But there is a center across, across the river uh, about an hour and a half to two hours away, and we're going to transfer you. They transfer the patient to the next hospital. By the time they reach, and uh, they're out of the window now. They're not eligible for that treatment anymore. So what happens to that patient? They're left paralyzed, and there's, no there's nothing else we can do after that. Well, let's now include telemedicine into that hospital that the first patient arrived to. Patient, same situation, paralyzed on the right side. Family member saw them, call, call 911. They arrived to the ER. The ER doctor says, I think you're having a stroke, and we have a service called Telestroke that we can uh, help you with. They call a doctor who's on the phone. They tell them the story. They activate the equipment, the telemedicine equipment. The doctor sees the patient in 10 minutes, looks at the, the CAT scan of the brain, uh, is, believes this patient's having a stroke, and offers a treatment. That same patient now, who would not have been treated and left paralyzed, has now been treated. And one-third of the patients we see, they will show some type of improvement. And one of the caveats to this medication is there is a risk of a bleed, that's, which is a side effect, which is also why some physicians in the ER or practitioners may hesitate in making the decision because of that liability. But that's why they want the expert opinion from a stroke physician. It's an incredible story. It's fun. This is amazing. And we, we see this every day where, you know, while where I was at Cooper, this is exactly what we did. Uh, we really did see patients in front of us get this medication, go from not speaking, not moving their arms or legs on the right side to talking again and, and perfectly back to normal. Yeah, it completely makes the, the case, right, for why telemedicine makes sense. Yeah. Um, one of the things you mentioned just a short time ago is you talked a little bit about challenges. When you look at hospitals and the industry in general, like what challenges did you see or have you seen with hospitals and providers that are trying to stand up telemedicine or telestroke programs? Yeah, so I think uh, th this is also a good point to kind of reference the transition of the industry and how it's been changing. Uh, it started about 10, 12 years ago. Telemedicine has been around for some time. It's just now starting to gain a little more attention. The last 10 years, I would say we're probably in phase two. Phase one was the last 10 years where these large institutions, these academic centers, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, University of California in San Diego where I trained, UPMC, they tested this out. They said, what is telemedicine uh, and, and what, does, what does it do? What can we achieve with this? And they've now published studies. We now have research. We now have evidence. We now have outcomes and data to substantiate the benefit of this. Phase two is now what these other hospitals now are looking at all of this data that we have and the uh, success of these programs at other hospitals now looking at what are our resources? Where can we leverage telemedicine? What specialties can we use it in? Uh, where can we really see the benefit in our large institution? Or maybe it's a community hospital. And they're now trying to figure that out as well. And I think that's going to happen for the next five years. Uh, and then I think well, it's going to turn into what I mentioned before, what our dream state is, uh, is telemedicine is no longer tele anymore. It's just medicine. This is a normal way, and this is the standard of care. Yeah, it's just the way that it's being delivered is through a technology platform. Exactly. And going back to your question regarding some of the challenges or the barriers, you know, over the last several years, uh, reimbursements has been a big issue, right? So uh, the way... Uh, CMS, the way private payers are reimbursing, usually drives the way hospitals will uh, adopt or not adopt certain programs. But now, over the last several years, there's more codes being added. 
by CMS every year for different specialties in telemedicine. Uh, psychiatry has been a great one where there's been a great adoption. Teleradiology has been around for many years, but just other specialties as well, uh, which they're now saying, we see the benefit, we're going to start paying. Private payers are also starting to pay. So that adoption now is going to start to increase, and that's why we're seeing this uptake as well. Legislation, 42 states in the country now uh, have approved or have some type of program or, or legislation in place for the op adoption of telemedicine. So that's in our favor. But the last 10 years, it hasn't been that great. Right. Uh, New Jersey was very slow to adopt. Pennsylvania is still on the, uh, on the lower end of it. I don't think they have anything in place yet. So, so uh, I think th there's still some work to do, but we're, we're gaining some traction. Yeah. Um, from a uh, legal standpoint as well, well, new, new physicians who hear about this, they say, I want to do this. How can I do this? You're telling me I can work from home? I can see patients? That sounds like a pretty good gig, but what's my liability? Right, so when we practice medicine, that is something we all have to take into account when we see a patient. What is our liability? How do we protect ourselves from that standpoint as well? Well, this is such a new industry, there's a lot of questions around that. What happens when a, a, a lawsuit comes up? How do I make sure I did everything I needed to to evaluate the patient correctly, to examine them correctly? So that is another thing that comes up with physician adoption is what is my liability there? So there are lawyers that ex uh, that specialize in telemedicine, a few. There are not as many yet. I have friends who are lawyers, and I encourage them all to get <laughs> into this field <laughs> because they charge a lot. <laughs> Can we explore the other side of this? So we talked a little bit about the challenges with hospitals. I'm wondering from a patient perspective, right, um, what do you see challenges being with patient adoption? And I'm, I'm going to ask because my personal experience has been a little bit frustrating with telemedicine where – I'm a big believer in trying to use um, a, a, a mode of delivery like this, especially when I'm at home with a sick child. And I remember trying it a couple of years ago and literally waiting for 35 minutes to the point that I just decided, forget it. Like, it's it's no better than calling, you know, the physician and trying to see if I can get an appointment the next morning. So do you see any challenges in, in just, um, A, uh patient adoption and then B, like I think there's something to be said too about the, the interaction that happens, right, face to face between a patient and a physician. And it's that whole idea of like bedside manner and and just that personal kind of uh you know uh exchange that goes on. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you've experienced or what you've seen or how's it getting better? Like how do you improve that that piece of it? Because it does feel like a pretty real challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I think from a patient perspective, the adoption has been a little slower uh, compared to an institutional or hospital standpoint. Uh, I think we still have a, li a little bit of ways to go for the average consumer or person in this country to change the mentality of seeing a physician not in person anymore. Uh, I think there are barriers there. there the innate barrier of I'm not in front of someone there is a screen in front of me and I just see a face in front of me uh, we're not used to that yet the, the, uh, it's not normal for us we're used to I want to see a doctor I'm going to call make an appointment I'm going to wait two hours in the waiting room and I probably have to spend half of my day off of work just to go see a doctor to think that we can actually do it quicker uh, easier is great but there are still some challenges I think from both sides from a physician standpoint as well like you said, so there is a shortage of physicians in this country. Uh, over over the un, until 2030, we're going to have a shortage of 40,000 to 100,000 physicians in this country. 
Now, uh, that is where the staffing on the other side, where it's United Healthcare or some of these other telemedicine um, direct to patient, direct to consumer providers need to understand as well is the expectation of a patient is I'm doing this because I have quicker access. I'm doing this because I now understand I, I have avi- this available to me where I don't need to take off of work. But if I'm going to be waiting 35 to 40, 45 minutes to see someone, it's not going to work. Uh, that 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 person we're now trying to convince, meaning a patient, that this is better than what we have, that may not work that way. So staffing is, is, is important. The other side, from a physician perspective, the etiquette that we have to learn and adopt to seeing someone on video is very different. So uh, when we introduce ourselves to a patient on the other end, has to be very cordial. We have to do a full introduction, let them know where we were trained. So that gaining that confidence, building that rapport with the patient is, is extremely important when you're asking them to trust you for the first time in taking care of your health. So, and that's part of what we did at Cooper as well. That's part of what I, I feel like uh, I've tried to help other physicians understand too. It's not like I've been practicing medicine for 20 years. I'm going to pick up a camera and a, and a computer and start seeing patients. It's not that easy. Uh, it does take some time to adopt on the physician side as well, knowing you can't touch them, knowing you can't put a stethoscope on, on their chest to listen to their heart beating anymore. There's other modes that we have to navigate around. We need the help of, uh, we need some help of a nurse sometimes for acute stuff if someone's at home. Uh, and if they're 85 years old, it's a different type of interaction uh, than you're going to have if you were in person. Yeah, it feels like there could be a generational component to this. Um, but it also feels like a very consumer-oriented, if done right, really plays into this theme of consumerism that we're hearing a lot about in healthcare because it's convenient, it's um, it has more of a, a retail-like experience um, for individuals that want more instant Absolutely. Attention, right? <laughs> so. a- absolutely. And I think this is where we are at right now. The next five, seven years, this is where things will shake out and companies are going to start to see where they can improve, what they can do better. There's wearables. There's bl- blood pressure monitoring kits we can send to patients' homes now. We can check their vital signs uh, where we don't have to be in person anymore. And I think that's also where you're, you're, you're going is you know, consumers. And we want everything to come to us now. We want cars to come to us. We want food to come to us. We want doctors to come to us. Yeah. And I think we're there. Uh, there's still some work to do, though. So when you think about the future of telemedicine, let's just say in the next five to seven years, like in your mind, what does that look like? The next five to seven years, uh, I think, I would say after five to seven years, this is going to be normal. Okay. This is going to be normal. I would go back to five to seven years ago or however long it was when before uber came around uber and lyft are now normal this is going to be normal five to seven years from now and you will have been at the forefront of this i hope so which is very exciting. <laughs> well there, there are a lot of other people uh, and mentors of mine that have guided me along the way that uh were, were pioneers in this industry and i'm trying to carry some of their uh, their thoughts forward as well so so it's exciting this is uh we've seen success in this we, we see great outcomes for patients uh, and it's really exciting to see how it's going to transition, not only in this country, but all across the world. So, um, A, thank you for, for taking the time to talk about this. It's, it's extremely interesting. And I definitely would love to have you back to hear more about this as, as things take shape. Um, I want to close our session with just asking you one question. Like, if I'm a healthcare leader and I'm thinking about adopting telemedicine or even more specialty telestroke or, you know, 
telepsychiatry. What's one thing you think uh, healthcare leaders should be thinking about when they, they think about this as maybe an extension of what their s- current service offering looks like? I think the most important thing is two things. One, what does the patient want and how does the patient benefit from this? What can we do to make this experience amazing for the patient so they want to have it again? And then think about what the physician needs and the physician wants. What does the physician experience look like as well? There's technology involved. There's a lot of moving parts, computers, uh, Wi-Fi connections, a lot of different equipment as well. So making sure you don't just start it to start it to say we have it, but start it and do it the right way. If you're going to do it and build it ground up, take everything into, uh, factor everything in from all the different aspects. There's a lot of stakeholders in this. There's a lot of people that can benefit if it's done right. But I have seen programs start and, and shut down after a year or two years. Uh, so adoption from physicians, making sure you understand what patients need and they're how they're really gonna benefit is important. Uh, and I think right now we're at a point where institutions are evaluating which specialty, which service to offer. That's a really critical step in this is not just doing a, or starting a service line that you have access to, but just making sure the service line you're gonna be starting is really gonna yield the best outcome. The ROI is really important, not only from a financial standpoint, and this is one really important thing I try to make sure hospitals understand. The immediate bottom line and the financials really shouldn't be the driver here. Uh, The long-term outcome, and when you really see the whole institution adopt to this, there's a huge benefit in culture. There's a huge benefit for the patients and community there, external of how much money we made out of this. Well said. Um, So thank you so much for joining us today on Trending Health. I really appreciate your insight and your passion around this topic (laughs) Um, and love to hear about what, how telehealth and telemedicine has just transitioned through the years because it's it's just fascinating to me. It's amazing. I love this stuff. It's it's exciting. I can tell. (laughs) Um, So thank you again and we look forward to having you back at some point. Thanks for having me, Mindy. Appreciate it. That was a fascinating conversation. And to recap what we heard from Dr. Narula and discuss the topic further, I'm joined by my co-host, Ryan Hummel, our provider sector advisor. Hello, everybody. And our dynamic colleagues, Jen Burke, who is our healthcare data expert. Hey, Mindy. And Milan Ratha, who is our technology and transformation enthusiast. Hey, everybody. So guys, I loved this interview with Dr. Narula. I thought it was so interesting. One of the things that really stood out to me, and I was a little bit surprised by actually, is when he noted that more than one-third of Americans live over an hour away from a stroke treatment center. For critical care where timing is everything, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on what is the opportunity for hospitals to improve patient outcomes when it comes to telemedicine? I think there is a huge opportunity in the critical care space, Mindy, not only for teleneurology and telestroke, but tele-ICU programs in general. Medical societies recommend that ICU patients be cared for 24-7, 365, but only 15 to 20% of ICUs are actually staffed by intensivists across those periods of time. And with an aging population, that shortage is just expected to increase over the next few decades. 
Yeah, and it, thanks, Minnie, for that point. And Jen, that's a really fascinating stat. Before patients even get to the ICU, I just find it interesting that <clears throat> even though one-third of Americans live an hour away from a stroke treatment center, so many more live even less than an hour away and are still not getting the care immediately that they should. And I think a lot of that has to do with some of the centralization of some of these really important stroke centers in the high urban areas. So you may be even 20, 30 miles away, which may be less than an hour away, but you may not have that incredible uh, stroke centralized unit on the ED side of the, of the health system. And I think one of the things that we're going to have to work on is how health systems let go of, I guess I'll call it an ego, to allow the opportunity to um, integrate something like what Dr. Narula mentioned into their pathways and allow these great uh, opportunities to save patients and realize that maybe their ED is not the right place for the way they're staffed to solve some of the problems immediately. Yeah, and, and just to kind of add on to that, I think um, from what Dr. Narula was, was kind of articulating around his um, telehealth program, I think there's two kind of hypotheses that were validated from, from what he's rolled out, right? Um, I look at time-sensitive intervention and then also the access to care model. So if we kind of apply both of those across different um, morbidities that, that hospitals deal with, I think that kind of process can be applied across that, right, where, where access to care, if you don't have certain um, specialties that you can cater to, you know, telehealth can be introduced in that model and also um, on different time-sensitive interventions of, of treating patients at an earlier um, point in time. So I think that was, a, that was an interesting point, an opportunity that I see um, for a lot of these hospitals. Yeah, and the other thing that, that was interesting around this specifically was the idea of, like, um, from a time sensitivity standpoint, how do you maybe get other types of healthcare providers involved? And I'm thinking more around, like, um, you know, who's the first person to respond to a family's call when somebody thinks that they have suffered a stroke? It's either police, fire, paramedics, right? So is there some way to use telehealth to then start to connect those types of, um, of individuals that are also part of this care delivery into this model? Yeah, that's a great point. And I think, you know, when I was having discussions with Dr. Narula about this, I think, you know, there was some discussions about even getting telehealth systems into EMT uh, vehicles so mm -hmm. that, um, to your point, Mindy, as, as an EMT arrives at a, at a patient's house and is diagnosing them, we're even pushing up that um, intervention earlier, right? So I think Dr. Narula mentioned that um, the time window to administer that TPA um, medication is about four and a half hours from when a stroke is um, occurs. And each minute where that medication is not um, administered, a patient loses 1.9 million neurons, right, which is accelerating the um, chance for disability. So um, to your point, adding that, adding that element of introducing telehealth into, you know, um, an EMT or, or earlier um, points of occurrences is, is definitely an opportunity where uh, I see. And think about that, you know, as, as deficiencies increase as time moves on, so does the potential length of stay for a patient to stay in a hospital. 
and that means the cost. That means the um, risk of acquiring infection. So, you know, it's almost one of those things where why wouldn't a health system be digging into this type of intervention earlier? And that's a great point, Ryan. There are some really great studies from 2017 that showed that tele-ICU programs increased case volume and access to high-quality critical care, as well as reducing the length of stay. Uh, one year-long study found that tele-ICU models helped cut length of stay by a third, saving 26,000 ICU days across 17 hospitals. Wow, that's some pretty impressive outcomes. So, you know, I was thinking about telemedicine in general. Like, when we think about it today, we often think about um, telemedicine in the, I guess, the model of connecting a patient to a doctor directly. But in both his work at Cooper and in this new venture that Dr. Narula is taking on, his focus is really about connecting specialists with other healthcare professionals. How do you see that providing maybe a unique benefit in what's been a pretty crowded telemedicine space? You mentioned a crowded telemedicine space. You know, at the last look I took at uh, telemedicine and telehealth, there is like 300 to 400 companies just off the off one Google search of these companies. So it's such a um, interesting uh, industry that every a lot of folks are trying to get into. I think it's interesting, the evolution, too. I think Dr. Narula mentioned how we're in phase two, uh, as the way he put it. I thought it was eloquently put. And I think that when you look at other industries and retail industries, the idea of going from B to C to B to B, it's a really interesting uh, parallel. And, you know, I think we've all had family members or friends um, that may have been in the uh, been admitted into a health system or a hospital with some of these really interesting, scary uh, diagnoses of stroke or, or heart attack. And one of the things that I think keeps folks in the hospital longer than actual being unhealthy is this coordination between specialists. You, know, you may see a specialist on one day and then another specialist comes the next day. I think it's a great opportunity and potential that exists for Dr. Narula's product is the idea that um, these specialists can talk real time um, when, in fact, right now they're not. And so there's this, this elongated conversation that's happening that I think telehealth could really help solve. One thing I think is really interesting is that when you look at the composition of who's using telemedicine, um, a 2016 study found that 11% of physicians were working in a practice that was using telehealth to communicate with another uh, healthcare professional. But if you look at the specialties that are doing that, um, emergency physicians, pathologists, radiologists, it's almost entirely different than the specialists we think of in normal telehealth practices, right? You think of psychiatrists, maybe cardiologists, radiologists. So it's interesting to see that specialist switch when you're talking about an HCP to HCP model. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny, just going back to what Dr. Narula said, uh, I know we've had some internal dialogue around the idea of taking telehealth and, and it's just part of healthcare. The more we talk about this, the more I, I realize that I think what he means is if you're able to embed telehealth into, let's call it the pathway and the care coordination of every patient, it then does become part of the treatment of every patient moving forward. So I do see a world where we can kind of eliminate telehealth as part of kind of a separate dialogue and lexicon. And I, I just want to add one more thing. You talked about the evolution to B2B. Just in the news recently, uh, Teladoc, which is a, a big player in the telehealth space, just purchased um, a company called InTouch Health. 
uh, for $600 million. So we are seeing some consolidation early in 2020 on this world. Um, just to put it in perspective, telehealth doc uh, achieves between 3.9 and 4 million virtual visits. And that was in 2019. That was just released. So big business, um, very, a lot of players in the field, but I think we're seeing some centralization, especially when it goes back to that idea of specialist to specialist um, evolution. Yeah. And I think as some of the the industry evolves, right? And as we get into this, you know, phase two, um, I think it's natural to see or expect that we're going to see some consolidation because many of these companies are probably going to try to, to um, either revamp or think about whether they can run parallel tracks in B2C and in B2B uh, because we definitely have seen huge success, right, in telepsychiatry. And so does that model have trans, like the ability to translate into other specialties? Um, but I thought it was just like a really interesting approach to this. And the other thing I thought was also interesting is this whole idea that um, telehealth is really, it's taking technology, right, as the foundation to deliver better health care, um, better access points, and really reaching um, individuals and, and physicians that may not have a vascular neurosurgeon on their, or neurologist on their staff to be able to treat patients where, you know, in, in previous years, even five years ago, they'd have to think about transferring that person. And, and the risk of that, back to Millen's point, is that you lose time. Mm -hmm. And so um, I agreed with him. Like, I, I think that that tele will almost be dropped in the next five years. And we're just talking about this as being, you know, potentially the standard of care. Yeah, I agree. I think um, technology is kind of always the leader and innovation follows that, right? So I, I look at this new, you know, the rollout of 5G networks that's going to bring internet access to very rural areas and, and the use of, of, of increased use of iPhones and tablets that is more prominent across all different, you know, um, demographics. So I think as we get as we get into that mode, I think this eases the um, the technology um, across the across rural areas, so that you know everyone can have the capabilities to introduce this. Yeah, one of the things I was thinking of um, during this discussion was we know that we are faced right over the next um, decade really with a physician shortage that could number anywhere between 40 and 100,000 physicians through 2030. Um, so what do you think are some of the biggest areas of opportunity for adopting telemedicine to help almost offset or augment the shortage that we're facing? I'd like to add on to that question. I'm really interested to hear what Jen and Millen have to say about that. It's it's the physician shortage that we've been talking about for years, but it's also the closing of a lot of rural health systems across the country. So I, I think the need has been expedited for something like telehealth and the opportunity. So it's almost like a yes and, Mindy. Yes, there are is a huge physician shortage that will continue. And these brick-and-mortar buildings are being closed at a rate. I mean, just in my hometown in Central PA, I just announced in a couple months ago that uh, a health system, the only hospital in that area, was just told that they were going to close their doors in the next couple months. See, this is great opportunity for telehealth to really spring into action. I think it has to start in the residency programs and the physician education that it's important. And I think Dr. Nerula also mentioned this idea of reimbursement in a state-by-state -state way. Um, I think he had mentioned uh, there's 
a little, there's over 40 states that ha- offer reimbursement. He mentioned New Jersey being late to the game and Pennsylvania being even later as we sit here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But um, I just threw out a lot of things out there. I'd be interested to hear what Nolan and Jen think about that. I, I think, Mindy, what you touched on, I, I think, is one of the biggest opportunities. I think a, a lot of the specialty services, um, when, when we think about the rural areas, um, in my discussions with Dr. Narula, um, he mentioned that um, MS is a, is a morbidity that's, that's treated by a lot of um, stroke physicians. So if you think about um, those rural areas, they may not have uh, you know, the, the, the stroke doctors there to treat some of these specialty um, services. So I think, I think that's definitely one of the areas where, where I see a lot of value from, from a telehealth perspective of, of connecting these specialty doctors to, to folks that don't have access to that. Yeah, Millen, you just um, tapped into something that we haven't talked about. We've been talking about acute episodes, right, emergency episodes. But when you think about certain disease states that may present themselves as acute initially but then become really chronic, right, so Mm -hmm. somebody's living with them over a period of time and still need to be seen and treated, that seems to me like another opportunity for telehealth in getting into these chronic disease states where there may be shortages of physicians, but you can tap into the technology to make sure that these patients still have access to care. Yeah, for example, um, Children's Health Texas actually implemented a program for patients with cystic fibrosis who lived more than two hours away from the health center where they could work with a provider via telehealth technology to work through their treatment programs. And they saw that after implementing this program, they saw a huge improvement in patient compliance, which we all know is so important both for patient quality of life, but overall economics of care as well. We also know, by the way, what's hitting the rural America more so than ever. And we, you know, we hear about it every day is this, uh, the opioid crisis that has reached, you know, um, millions of Americans every day. And I wonder if there's an opportunity for telemedicine to address that really um, dire need as well. That's definitely true, Ryan. Um, pain is the top complaint that primary care physicians are getting from their patients, and it counts for 70 million doctor visits annually. Uh, patients who stayed in contact with their doctors via telemedicine were twice as likely to report 30% pain, 30% less pain after 12 months, and fewer telehealth patients escalated their pain management to an opioid treatment. And to that idea of specialists and the coordination of care and getting multiple minds around a problem, incorporating telehealth into pain management practices can help bring in unique perspectives from pain specialists into the primary care office where they can look for alternative treatment methods such as physical therapy, chiropractic care, acupuncture that might not have originally occurred to the primary treating physician. So many places that we could go with this. It's so interesting to me. Um, One of the things I want to just tap on and, and or follow up on is we talked a little bit about how in the next five five to seven years, I mean, Dr. Nerula mentioned that he thinks that telemedicine becomes the new standard of care. We talked about the fact that you might just drop the word tele um, and it's just a new way of delivering medicine. If that's the case and we think about this, what are the challenges that will need to be overcome to make this a reality? We know that state legislation has been um, previously a, a real hurdle for these telemedicine companies, but it looks like those are now being cleared out. Are there other challenges that you think rise top of mind that need to be overcome to really make telemedicine the new standard of care? 
I think definitely the cost of implementing such programs, particularly in the critical care uh, environment, is a big challenge. It can cost up to $2 million for an average size ICU to set up such a tele-ICU program, and the ongoing cost per year can range between fifty to 100000 which can be a hard pill to swallow without the sort of studies to justify the indirect benefits of improved efficiency and increased volume um, and decreased length of stay. Uh, I agree, Jen. I think another big opportunity or challenge, again, I mentioned this earlier, is the reimbursement uh, for this. I think we can beat around that topic a lot, but I think until there is a more crystallized reimbursement policy state by state, it'll be difficult to get systems, physicians, specialists to adhere to all of this. And just of note, it's very interesting. American Wells Telehealth Index for 2019 said that um, usage was up 340% in 2018 compared to just two or three years ago in telehealth. So we know usage is up. We know that physicians need and want this telehealth to be part of the standard of care, I think reimbursement really needs to be uh, something prioritized in the next two to three years. Yeah, I'd say Dr. Narula touched on a big point around bedside manners and and getting um, all the stakeholders involved. And I see that as as one of the big challenges as well. Um, If you think about changing the public perception on on getting treated through telehealth, I, l- I look at this as how, d- how do you make the patient feel at ease and um, how do you integrate all the stakeholders? So if you think about uh, um, the nurses and how, how they're administering the care, you know, attending physicians, the, the telehealth doctor, having them all on the same page and defining a process for delivering care through telehealth is a, is a big challenge that I see um, hospitals uh, trying to pull together. Yeah, so it's, ho- it's mindset. It's process, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's technology, too. Technology. Um, yeah, it's such an interesting topic. And I, I'm so um, fascinated and curious to see how this takes shape over the next five to seven years and how much adoption is actually made and how much improvement is made in the technology to really um, create you know, interactions that are going to be meaningful in this B2B environment. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in this episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Bynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit TrendingHealth.com. Tune in to the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.